turn in uh, your scriptures to Matthew's gospel as we are continuing in the gospel of Matthew. It's chapter 21, and we are coming right off the heels of the triumphal entry, which is the first text of Matthew 21, and we will begin at verse uh, 12 as we saw uh, the triumphal entry and Passion Week just a month ago as we celebrated uh, Easter week. And as you're turning there into Matthew chapter 21, uh, we are reminded of one of, of Scripture's very important themes, and that is the theme of space, location, uh, place. We might say sacred space. Uh, through the story of Scripture, uh, place and location are important. We think of Abraham called by the Lord to leave his homeland to go to a new promised land that God had ordained, set apart, uh, formed its borders, and promised to his people. Uh, throughout Israel's history, many are the sites and the places and the locations that are significant, uh, places where God worked powerfully in the lives of his people, corporately and individually. Uh, we think of Moses and the burning bush, the Lord appearing to Moses and speaking to him. And we hear in Exodus 3, the place you are standing is holy ground, a place hallowed because of God's presence. We think of the point at which the people crossed the Red Sea or the Jordan River. Think about the city of Jerusalem. The chronicler says this was a city promised of God, the city of God, in which God would make his name known and would dwell. Of all these places, arguably the most important, the most sacred place and space was the temple. One author said, this is where the Lord, Yahweh, lived. He ruled in the midst of Israel, in the temple. This is the place where the sacrificial system reached its climax in the great festivals, the Feast of Tabernacle, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Passover. This is the place where uh, he demonstrated his grace, forgave his people, restored them and cleansed them. This is the place of the height of communal celebration. It was the temple. And so the temple was central to the life of Israel, and it is a thread, a theme that runs all the way through uh, the Old Testament, one of the most important themes, and finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. And here in Matthew 21, after Jesus has triumphantly entered into the city, he goes to the temple. He draws near to the temple. But it is drawing near to cleanse it. The, the people are far from the things of God. Their hearts are far from the things of God. And Jesus ultimately is pointing to a far greater temple, is what we ought to see. Just as he said back in chapter 12 of Matthew, something greater than the temple is here. So listen now to God's word. Matthew 21, beginning at verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, 
and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. From Psalm 8. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Well, much is learned about the identity and the mission of our Lord Jesus by tracking where it is that he goes in his ministry. And the first place he goes, just following the triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, is to the temple. Here it is, Passover week. This is the most active, uh, the most celebrated week in Israel's life, in the Jewish life. Here it is, the city of Jerusalem. This is the city God chose to make his dwelling known, to make his name known. This is the center of religious devotion and life. And it is the temple. This is the central place where God had promised he would dwell with man. And it's there that Jesus goes. That is where he is focused. In fact, the temple is not only the place where he goes at the end of his ministry, here recorded in Matthew 21, the last week of his life, it's actually the first place that he goes as he begins his ministry, one of the first places. That's recorded by the Apostle John. In John's Gospel, chapter 2, John records Jesus' first of several journeys to the temple. And so his journey to the temple really serves as kind of a bookends or brackets his entire ministry. And what this reveals to us is that Jesus is on a divine mission, and his divine mission centers on worship, uh, man's orientation to God. That is at the heart of our Lord. He does not go first on a journey to Rome, one of the centers of political life and power. He does not go first to Fort Antonia, which was the house of the Roman army adjacent to the temple in Jerusalem. Here, the center of military might. He doesn't go to Athens, one of the centers of philosophy and thinking. All important, all have a place in God's world and economy, but the kingdom of Jesus Christ centers first and foremost on man's relationship to God. I think we can say every nation, uh, the measure of every nation, the measure of every society is indeed based on its relationship to God. And it's true, just as in our day, in our community, all around the world, so it was in our Lord's ministry. He saw a lot of social injustice. Uh, he saw a lot of economic oppression. He saw political posturing 
and power plays. But what concerned him most was man's relationship to God, how people understood God, how people approached and worshipped God. Uh, One author said this, Many things needed a soldier. Many things needed an army. Many things needed a social reformer. But more than that, men needed God and the true worship of God. And how important that is for all of us, uh, not only at this time in the world at large, but in our own personal worlds, in our own individual lives. Uh, whether it's an economic setback or there's relational strife that you're experiencing in your life and world or there's an emotional pain that you're enduring, where God centers us again and again, where he anchors us first and foremost, is in our life, in our relationship to him and the nature of that relationship. And the temple represented that. And so that is why Jesus in great part goes to set right the temple. And of course, we have read and see very clearly as he enters the temple, it's very clear something is terribly off. We see it in the opening verse of our passage. While there's many people in the temple and on the temple grounds, there's a lot of religious activity taking place. At the core, there is a corruption. He sees a corruption of worship. And it's revealed not only by what Jesus does and the actions that he takes, but perhaps even more by what he says there in the temple. Verse 12 says, He entered the temple. He began to drive out all who sold and bought. He overturned the tables of the money changers. And then he said, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. In Mark's account, Mark chapter 11, verse 16, we're told that Jesus, quote, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. I referred to John chapter 2. Most people believe that is another different incident that occurred in which Jesus also was driving people out of the temple. Obviously, there was not the kind of reform that took place even in Jesus' ministry But there in John 2, he had taken, we're told, a a whip of cords and began driving people out. He does not become physical with people, but as one author said, he certainly rearranges the furniture. Okay, He is eruptive here, in a sense. There There is a righteous indignation and anger from our Lord here more than anywhere else in the gospel stories. I think Jesus is essentially saying, this is my house. This is my father's house. Your religious activity is not enough. Being in the temple, being around the things of God, is not enough. So here, Jesus is really making quite a scene. He's really disrupting, if we think about it, what is the highest point in the religious year. It's suggested that during Passover week, Uh, the city's population in Jerusalem would swell to three or four times its size. Hundreds of thousands of people would be in the city at this time. And many, many people valued this week. They valued what this represented. 
Thousands of people would be making a journey, a pilgrimage, to the city who lived outside, even uh, some at great distances. And so they went to celebrate Passover, to offer sacrifice, to express devotion. The temple was central to, to Israel's life. This is the place where God dwells, where his law uh, resides, where atonement for sin was made. Uh, this is the place where the prophets like Zephaniah and Haggai and Zechariah said a king would come, would usher in a new era, a new age would, rush, would be ushered in by a king, and he would establish peace and justice. It would be here at the temple. And so how significant this is to the people of Jesus' day. But on top of all that, the temple was simply a sight to see. The, the architecture caused you to be in awe. Remember, this is the second temple, and King Herod had expanded the temple, and it was really one of the marvels of the ancient world. The outer walls were comprised of huge double colonnades with hundreds of pillars made of pure white marble, some 100 feet high, elaborate engravings. It was a work that took over four decades to construct in Herod's effort to extend his own control and influence. And so the, the sight of the temple alone brought a sense of elation. And I think there's an important point here about the significance of space and location, the power of it. Uh, like some of you, I've had the privilege of uh, visiting certain cathedrals uh, in the world, uh, St. Peter's in Rome. I was able to tour that. St. Paul's in London, those are two of the largest cathedrals in the world. Notre Dame. When you walk into a place like that, uh, you're, you're simply in awe by the, the sheer size of the place. The architecture uh, causes a kind of awe. Your eyes are lifted heavenward. and There's a kind of uh, euphoria. And, uh, and yet, as significant as space can be, we, we see its limitation. We see even the temple's limitation throughout the Old Testament and here in Jesus' day. Uh, we might put it this way. There is no cathedral, there's no chapel, there's no sanctuary space that itself has the power to transform the people of God. It is God who transforms his people and through them makes a space hallowed. And we have probably experienced that, many of us, in times of worship. It's not the space. It's God who hollows that space because of what he has done in the lives of his people. And I, and I hope that's some, one of the reasons we long to be physically together again. It's not because the walls or the pews or the carpet are holy. It's because God has done a powerful work in the lives of us, his people, through the gospel of Christ. And when we gather together, God shows up. God is present. His presence is manifest. His power is manifest. And it's one of the most wonderful things in living the Christian faith. When Jesus came into the temple, in verse 13, he said, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. He's coming in the spirit and the prophetic word of Isaiah and Jeremiah. 
both of those prophets had spoken these very words. Jesus has those prophets in mind, those contexts, I would think, in his mind. So let's consider those very briefly. In Jeremiah 7, which is where this reference comes from, one of the places, the Lord had said to Jeremiah in verse 2, Jeremiah, go stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. Do not trust, people, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Three times. In other words, don't be deceived. Thinking that because you're in the temple, you're in the place of worship, you're offering sacrifice, that you are reconciled to God or that you are in right relationship with Almighty God. When the rest of your life is empty of devotion, empty of conviction, empty of his word, Jeremiah here is not describing the struggling sinner who's saved by grace. He's describing... The hypocrite who appears religious in the temple but has a godless life. God is not present in his life. And that's what the Lord says through Jeremiah. We we hear these words in chapter 7 of Jeremiah. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, uh, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Here, Jesus clearly has in his mind, referencing Jeremiah, the message of of hypocrisy. You are participating in temple life and in worship, but, but your life has no match, no correspondence to this. And so there is certainly a message of judgment. The Isaiah passage, which we heard read earlier in the Old Testament scripture reading, brings even more insight into our Lord's actions and words in the temple. If you turn to Isaiah 56, you will see that almost the entire chapter is about God's saving power to foreigners to the Gentile world, which is a powerful, powerful message. And so in Isaiah 56, which we heard read earlier, I'll read a few lines again. Verse 6 says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants... These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. How important this is. Israel from the very beginning was called to be a light to the nations. Abraham was called by God and through him he would bless all the nations of the earth. The psalmist in Psalm 67 May your saving power be made known on earth. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. But what is happening in the temple in Jesus' day? Remember the construction of the temple itself. The, The temple was constructed to communicate not only the holiness of God, 
but where people stood in relationship to God. At the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies. Only one person, we heard last week, behind the pulpit from Pastor Bill, the high priest once a year would go into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice. Outside of the Holy of Holies was the most holy place, then the inner court, then the outer court, the court of women, the court of the Gentiles, a large space. So if you were the high priest or one of the thousands of priests in Jesus' day, or you were a Jewish male, or you were a believing woman, or you were a Gentile or foreigner who believed in the Lord, you knew your place in the temple. But you had a place. No matter who you were, if you were united to the Lord in faith, you had a place. You were supposed to have a place. I'm reminded of my childhood growing up uh, during dinner time uh, with two older brothers, mom and dad and grandma. I knew when it came time to sit down at the table which seat was mine. Many of you probably have a similar practice. You know which seat is yours. You don't need to think about it. I knew what seat was mine and which seats were not mine. I knew I would not sit at the head of the table. Not a good idea. I knew not to sit at one of my brother's seats. There would be consequences being the youngest brother. But I knew I had a seat. I knew where I belonged. I knew this was my house. I belonged in this house. I belonged at this table. I had a place to belong. And and I believe part of the anger of the Lord Jesus here is expressed not just because the temple was becoming a commercial enterprise. It suggested that uh, tables and stalls were set up at least three weeks in advance to prepare for Passover week and the throngs of people that would be coming. You can imagine how the commercial currency exchange would become a, a, a central part. How do we make this how do we make this all work? Even perhaps to our own advantage. But most believe these tables are set up in the court of the Gentiles. It's, it's disrupting the very house of God. Perhaps even disrupting the Gentiles' place and access to the Lord. Those are the contexts of Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's certainly one of the most explosive and eruptive scenes uh, in the New Testament, but it really turns into a beautiful picture, a kind of vision for what temple life and what church life ought to be about. Because what happens immediately after Jesus cleanses the temple? Verse 14, the blind and the lame, they came to him in the temple. And he healed them. And the children are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. You've got the blind, you've got the lame, you have children. They know where hope is found. They know where worship is to be centered. And how important are those words in verse 14? The blind and lame came to him in the temple. They come into the house of the Lord, but they don't stop there. They go to him. He is the true temple. John tells us that. Jesus tells us that in John's gospel there in John 2. 
destroy this temple, referring to his body, and I will raise it in three days. The church is called the temple of God in the New Testament in more than one place. Paul says in Colossians, in Christ, the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. In Christ, the presence of God is fully manifest. There's so much happening in this one scene. The the weak, the outcasts are drawing near, really fulfilling Isaiah and and Micah's words about the last days, how the mountain of the house of the Lord will be raised as the highest mountain. People will come streaming to him, the nations. You have the children giving praise, calling out Hosanna, salvation to the Lord, to the son of David. A reference to his kingship. Jesus is referencing Psalm 8. Out of the mouths of infants, you've prepared praise. There is much happening, but it is all centering on Christ. There is a new era, a new epoch that is being ushered in, and we're seeing that unfold right here at Passion Week. Judging and inciting Israel is taking place, but at the same time, he's giving us a true a picture of life with God, uh, a life that would go beyond simply paying one's dues, performing one's duties, reflecting a, a generally outward moral life. This is sincere praise and adoration. This is God's call to the nations to open their hearts, to call upon him, call upon him in prayer. This is healing for the brokenhearted. Jesus' words and actions are not, however, a mere cleansing or reform of the temple. This this is a message of judgment. We can say this really is a cursing of the temple, of what is happening in the temple, of first century Israel, Judaism. All that they were called to do and to be is, is seemingly corrupt at the core. Jesus is pronouncing a kind of curse. And he's pointing to himself as the fulfillment of the temple. He would be the dwelling place of God. He would be the source of healing. He would be the object of praise and and adoration. And then you have the picture of this fig tree that really ought to be seen in the larger context here. Jesus uses this visual aid to communicate what has just happened and, and to call us to a a point of faith. Matthew says that the next morning as Jesus was coming back into the city, he was hungry, he saw a fig tree, he went to it, but it had no leaves, or it had no fruit, it only had leaves. And so he curses the fig tree and it withers. And verse 20 says, when the disciples saw it, they marveled and they said, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up, thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. The cursing of the fig tree is indeed coming in the larger context of uh, the Lord's cursing and judgment on Israel, which will result in the destruction of the temple which Jesus will speak of a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 24, the well-known Olivet Discourse. The the destruction of the temple is coming. And I think Jesus is revealing who the true Israel is. 
those united to him. That the true people are not going to be determined by their association with these four walls, the temple, but their faith and knowledge of him to whom the temple points. And Jesus is contrasting faithless Israel and their corruption with faithful followers of him. The picture he uses is of a fig tree. But what's the problem? Verse 19 says, Seeing the fig tree, he went to it and found nothing but leaves. Well, since the fruit of the fig tree would begin to appear about the same time as the leaves, the appearance of leaves in full bloom should indicate fruit. But there is none. It had the appearance of fruit. It has the appearance of fruit, but not the reality. And so here Jesus is pointing out the faithlessness the hypocrisy, the facade of Israel's religious life. And at the same time, he is calling his disciples. If if you have faith, he's calling them to a life of faith in him. If you have faith and do not doubt. And so the faith Jesus is speaking about has everything to do with him, believing who he is, uh, resting in him for salvation and life for restoration and healing. All of these things that we need to know and we need to have in our lives. He says, if you say to this mountain, well, people don't talk to mountains, I don't think, hopefully not, but we do talk to others and we do talk to ourselves about mountain-sized issues in life. And that's part of what he's talking about. We talk to ourselves, we talk to others about mountain-sized issues. And you may be experiencing a mountain-sized issue in your life. We as a church, we may conclude right now, are going through a season facing a mountain-sized issue. And yet Jesus tells us where we ought to draw near for that, in whom we ought to trust. He is saying, for your faith to be living and active, sincere, fruit-bearing, to deal with the issues that confront us in life, base your life upon me. Uh, Kind of throw yourself toward me in prayer. That my people would be defined by prayer. A sincere heart of drawing near to God. A dependence upon God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we have considered a all important text and the unfolding of your story of how you indeed in Jesus Christ ushered in uh, the beginning of a new age, uh, how your, your faithful people continue on, yet we see your hand of judgment upon those who are mere uh, hypocrites. There's only a facade. There's only a covering of religious life. But you promise, Lord, as as you call your people to you in faith, that as we draw near to you, uh, resting in you, you will hold us. You will, as we see, uh, heal and restore your people. Um, Lord, we thank you how clear uh, you make it in your word that you are the, the true object of worship. We thank you that you call us to be in Christ, the the temple, 
that you, the temple of God, that you dwell with us. And so we pray this morning and this day, Lord, that we would know your presence, that we would know your power in sincere and true and real ways. We pray, Lord, that for us individually and corporately, as we indeed are confronted with mountain-sized issues, that we know the answer lies in drawing near to you in prayer, resting in your grace and in your sovereign will. So continue to guide us and bless us, Lord, as your people, um, uniting our hearts in faith in your Son. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.